Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, the Herefordshire countryside with Gavin Plumley and his new book, A Home for All Seasons. Gavin Plumley is a cultural historian. He appears frequently on BBC Radio, has written for newspapers and magazines worldwide, and gives talks at leading museums and galleries. And Gavin is the author of a new book, A Home for All Seasons, which we're going to be talking about today. Gavin, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. To begin with, tell us a little bit about your background. And mainly here I'm thinking, I want to talk about the pull between the city and the country in your early life. Well, I I was born in Scotland. My dad was in the RAF, so we moved around a lot when we were kids, me and my brother. And we grew up predominantly, or certainly I did, up in North Wales. We lived on Anglesey and we would spend a lot of time in Snowdonia, up in the mountains. And we'd also spend quite a lot of time on my mum's farm, where my grandfather was still a Welsh sheep farmer further south in Wales. So my early childhood was thoroughly rural. But when I was seven years old, we moved down to the outskirts of London to Zone 6. And that proximity to the city, that proximity also to its culture, its museums, its incredible buildings, did change my life, really. And I don't think, I suppose, I realised that at the age of seven, but it really became part of my character and there was nowhere I would rather be than in London. And that would remain the case for a long time, well into my 20s, in fact, into my 30s, until really uh, things started to change as a result of meeting my now husband, Alistair, nearly two decades ago. And he being a much more thoroughly rural person, he lived out into the uh, in the countryside, he was He was a teacher in Northamptonshire, and I'd go up there every weekend. And although, you know, I had sort of got back on the train to King's Cross, absolutely defiant that I'd never move out to the countryside, he did really change my perspective. Or rather, as I realised slowly, returned my perspective to rural matters, to wanting, in fact, to be out of the city and enjoying the breath of fresh air, the incredible views, and the culture, the agriculture, and the views of the seasons that came with being out of the city. You don't really, I don't think, really notice 
the change from spring to summer to autumn to winter in London quite as much as you do when you're observing it in the woods and fields of England. And that really triggered something in me. And I think it was rooted in my youth. It was rooted in my ancestry and in the history of my ancestry. And that, I think, was quite a shock when it happened, because it's like it had been sitting dormant there for nearly, well, two and a half decades. And suddenly, I felt a pull to it, and a pull to something that felt a bit like home, but was never a home that I had had. So the book is about a house that you and your husband buy in the countryside. We'll get to the house in a moment. But at the beginning, there's a fascinating discussion about, as I mentioned in, in the introduction, you're a historian, and you talk about the paradox of being a gay historian. Well, it's, it is paradoxical because the majority, and when I say the majority, I mean really the huge majority of historical texts, historical tales that are passed down through primary and secondary sources are heterosexual, are white, of course, as well. I, I can't claim anything else on that. I am, uh, you know, a white cis male and a middle class too. But there is a real strangeness with engaging with the past when you cannot find, you know, the gay couple who lived in a Herefordshire village back in the 1800s and certainly before that too. Of course, there are narratives there. You have to wheedle them out or make some guesswork because these are people also that had they left behind letters, had they left behind documentary evidence of the gayness of their lives, would have found themselves driven out of the village or imprisoned. And so what I say in the book really is this idea of my obsession with the past is somewhat counterintuitive. And of course, that plays out also in that urban-rural tension in my life. The city is largely a place that we would associate with gay histories, you know, the history of Harvey Milk, in San Francisco, or gay London during the 1960s and 1970s, New York too during that period, and into the AIDS crisis, the AIDS crisis itself being very much associated as a a kind of urban thing. And those are very recent histories. And the rural doesn't tend to have these associations, and yet there are those stories there. So that was really what I felt was paradoxical about being a gay historian. And Because we go back to history, we go back to stories that are both fictional and factual to find ourselves in them. Not necessarily narcissistically, I don't want to find someone called Gavin back in 1750. But we do want to have that kind of common purpose, that common thread, that sense that, you know, we have been alive before. And that is difficult to find when you are a gay man, because those stories have not been recorded. So you mentioned Herefordshire, and Herefordshire is is where the house is in the village of Pembridge, to be precise. And I had a, a weird inkling this afternoon, and I pulled up a map of, of England, and Herefordshire is absolutely the only county in England that I've never visited, um, <laughs> which a bit of a narcissistic for me to mention there, but to bring in the idea of, of its remoteness and its ruralness, um, because it's not a place you pass through to get to anywhere else even, really. And so tell us something about Herefordshire itself and then the village of Pembridge. Well, Herefordshire is, as I say in the book um, a number of times, you know, on the edge of England. And I think, you know, that is obviously true in the sense that it's borderland. I am sitting here right now about five, six miles from the Welsh border. And as someone who's half Welsh, half English, that appeals. 
Herefordshire is a quiet county. It's a, it's a big county, but it's the third least populated county outside London, that is, um, after the Isle of Wight and Rutland. So they're tiny, and Herefordshire is big, so it's sparsely populated. It is essentially agricultural, and it's a place really where your engagement with the past is very clear because it's a county that's been largely untouched by modern planners. Yes, of course, there are housing estates, there are modern developments, there's a shopping centre in Hereford itself. But in the main, as you're driving around the county, you're going through villages that have not been affected by modernity. Frequently, you'll be passing views that have been there for 500, in some cases, 600 years, and they are exactly as they would have been. And that is hugely appealing to me. Um, It's not really about the remoteness so much as about that connection with history. I say in the book that I love that moment where you can hold history in your hands, and that's frequently the case here in Herefordshire with the timber-framed houses everywhere. And Pembridge, uh, the village where I live, the village where I bought Steps House with my husband uh, four and a half years ago and the house that is uh, the home for all seasons of the title of my book is, um, I suppose, the quintessence of what you'd imagine Herefordshire to be. In many ways, I think it's the quintessence of what you'd imagine England to be in that rural sense. It's full of timber frame villages. I live in one. I'm looking out of the window at two major timber frame buildings too. It's a place which... It's quaint, as opposed to an outside viewer. I think it's much more urgent than that. It's a busy place. It is a working village. It doesn't have endless tea shops and antique shops and sort of bijou places to pop in. It is somewhere where people get on with their lives. And yet it's also a haven for me and Alistair. It's a place that we come to escape. And it's a place that I was rather surprised to find was massively intriguing and began the narrative of what would eventually turn into a book. So describe for us finding the house. Well, I'm a freelancer. I'm I'm a writer. I do some broadcasting. I do some lecturing. Alistair is a teacher. In fact, he's a headmaster. And his job is at a boarding school in Somerset. And we moved there four and a half years ago. And we're very, very lucky. We're very privileged to have a house that comes with his job. But we wanted to make sure that we had our own place and drew a large circle around his place of work as a sort of idea of how far we'd want to travel to get to our own home. And that at the northern edge basically led us from Herefordshire down towards Oxford. And I have nothing against the Cotswolds at all. It's a very beautiful place, but it was perhaps a little too tied up with a bow for my taste. And so we began in Herefordshire looking around here. I knew the area a bit because I went to school in the neighbouring county. And the less said about that, the better. But I still adored the landscape and knew the village of Pembridge a bit because the first gay couple I'd ever known uh, lived here. And in fact, one of them um, is still alive and lives here in a beautiful timber frame cottage outside the village. And that inspired us to, as it were, include it on a list of places to come and search for a potential home. And the moment I saw Steps House on the Market Square in Pembridge was really a love at first sight moment. We hadn't even got over the threshold to the house. And I said, well, this is it. And Alistair, who's much calmer about these things, 
said, no, 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 we really need to look inside first. And that's described um, in the book, but it really was that kind of sureness that this was where we were meant to be. And I hate to say it because it sounds very braggy, but by God, I was right. Because every time we come here, every time we make that just over two hour journey from our place of work to what is largely a place of rest, though, of course, over the last few years with lockdowns and so on and so forth, it has also become a place of work to an extent. But every time we come over that threshold, the same threshold we crossed on the day we observed the house, went round the house, toured the house, the same magic thing happens. And it cures so many ills, you know, my mental health problems, my sadnesses, um, also our stresses, just daily life, you know, getting the shopping done, the dusting, the hoovering, whatever else it might be. Somehow this place cures all of them. And it can take up to 24 hours, maybe even 48 hours sometimes. But there is no doubt that when the calm comes, it's absolutely extraordinary and hugely curative. And I'm so glad we came here and found it. It has given us a home. And as I said earlier, Neil, I, my father was in the RAF, which meant we had a very peripatetic childhood. And Alistair's father was in the Navy, and that meant that they were moving around a lot too. Uh, they had a family home, but it wasn't, I suppose, in the same sense of being rooted in a place. And I really wanted to be rooted somewhere. And I say in the book that I wanted a geography for our marriage. That was given to us by Steps House, by Pembridge, and by the whole county of Herefordshire. And it's, it's absolutely our home. We have no claims on it whatsoever. We're just passing through. But while we are passing through, it's where we want to be. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gavin Plumley, and we're talking about his book, A Home for All Seasons. And Gavin, you have a, as well as a, a deep interest in the history of the house in and of itself, there's urgency to find out how old the house is because the insurance company needs to know. And so tell us a little bit about the story of trying to age the house. Stets House is a timber framed property and in many ways, it kind of conceals its history from the front. It looks Georgian, maybe Victorian. It's got other bits added on to it. But at its core is this little timber frame structure. And that was the bit of the house that was going to give up or should have given up most clues as to when this property was placed here. And I knew when the insurance salesman said to me, you know, how old is the house? He was asking loads of other questions, you know, are there uh, tiles or slate on the roof? Is it made of brick or stone? All of those sorts of things. And I said timber framed, and it was quite clear that in his drop-down menu, there wasn't an option for timber framed. But that his main question of the date of the house, I knew I could get to it somehow through a whole host of experts that look at these kind of buildings, look at vernacular architecture. And one of them lives very locally. He's a genius. Um, he's a man called Duncan James, and he used to be a jeweller. And his uh, obsession with minutiae, the sort of looking at some tiny jewel and the clasps that go around it, has translated in retirement to looking at these wooden buildings and how they're constructed. And he's pretty much the expert, certainly in this area of the country, on how they were built, when they were built. And he came and he did a sort of seance or kind of tea leaf reading on our house, running his hands along the beams, pointing out various different details, and came up with a pretty good ballpark figure for the date of the house. But I, of course, was now obsessed with this process, so then called in another group of people, dendrochronologists, those who study, well, the chronology of wood, um, as the name means, and they bore out core samples from the timbers in a house, and they compare that to a database of Samples from oak trees, the felling date of which they know. And I had already learned from Duncan that basically a felling date was a construction date for one of these houses. There were no sort of timber yards for these kind of homes. They were built from oak that was chopped wet in late winter or early spring and thrown up almost immediately. So to get the answer from the dendrochronologist was basically a pretty, well, as accurate as you could possibly hope to be without finding something in the annals, for instance, saying, you know, Steps House was built in 1581. And so I called in them. By the time that they had, and, you know, no spoilers about what they found in the house, that they had come, that my mind was absolutely racing away. This wasn't just about dating the house, because that's not a book, that's a pamphlet. It is more about saying, okay, we know more or less when it's built, but what was that world like? You know, who was living here? What were they doing in this building? What was their experience day by day? You know, on a late December evening as the shadows fall, what were they feeling? How cold were they? What were they wearing? What were they eating? What did it smell like? And it completely and utterly obsessed me. And I didn't realise it at the time. But of course, I was doing all the groundwork for the book. And a book that morphed out of a simple house history, a simple tale of a timber frame building built in a Herefordshire village to something much more akin to 
Neil McGregor's podcast and programmes for Radio 4 about the history of the world and indeed the history of Germany through individual objects. And also my friend Philip Blom's amazing book about the history of his violin, which is this seemingly contained, discrete object, and yet can tell you the history of the world at that moment in time. And I realised as I was looking back at the period, which in a general sense is the end of the 16th century, that it was a period of war, of famine, of pestilence, of breaking away from Europe, of the Little Ice Age, so one of climate change too. And that was absolutely seismic for me. This totally shook me as I was realising that our property was built into this really torrid world. And it is a world, of course, that sitting here in 2022 at the end of the year of the book's publication, that had significant echoes, really eerie echoes, with the world in which I was writing the book. And in your investigation into the history of the house, you mentioned trying to look into like previous owners, so we could talk about that. But also, it turns out that it probably wasn't always a house. No, the situation of the house, or what is now a house in the village, is really, is really special. Pembridge was a market. It had been, right up until Henry VIII's reign, an important trading post between England and Wales. And when Henry VIII took Wales under English rule, perhaps um, Pembridge lost some of its leverage. But that is the very moment that the market hall outside the front of our house was built. Already behind the house is an enormous churchyard within it, um, a huge church. I mean, really quite sizable for a village um, and a separate belfry and, of course, a large graveyard around it. So it was built between these two centres of power, commercial and religious. And this is, of course, also a time of religious change. So when Duncan James came to the house, he said, you know, this is a really crucial site in the village um, and its history. It's probably built on church land and yet seems to have been connected to the market. And the reason that Duncan thought it wasn't a house to begin with was because the chimney, the chimneys aren't part of the original floor plan. They were added on later. So this was a place with no heating. And my goodness, we know that this winter. Uh, therefore, it was probably used as a market storehouse uh, in the basement level would have been fats and meat on the ground floor where I'm sitting right now, probably where grain was stored over the winter months. And then on the top floor, which wasn't even a floor, it was just an attic with a ladder going up there, laid out on straw and turned every now and then would have been the apples and pears from the neighbouring orchards. And they would have been kept over winter here too, and of course kept cold and dry. Uh, which was absolutely crucial for all of it. And it was only later that that was changed. I can't pin down the moment when it was changed, though, judging by additions to the property, judging by the sale of various different buildings around this point in the village during the late 18th and early 19th century, we think Steps House became Steps House or rather a domestic property around that point in time. And of course, all of that triggers yet more narrative threads that run through the book like wildfire. I mean, it's, it's basically like setting an entire colony of rabbits chasing across the landscape in this book. And you want to try and get all their little tails and pin them down so you can understand everything. And that's absolutely triggered by all of these things I learn when I'm sitting in the archives in Hereford and looking through rent rolls and trying to piece together 
the history of the village and where our house had its role within that. And to be honest, Neil, I don't necessarily always come to a conclusion. It's impossible to. In a village like this, records are kept on a piecemeal basis. But what I found amazing was that when you had certain clues, you know, something from 1580, another thing from 1605, and something in a neighbouring village from 1590, that you could basically leap like stepping stones through a stream, or at times it felt more like jumping from one trapeze to another, to create these narrative links and understand the chronology of the place. And that included those characters that I found listed, named in the annals, in those archive documents. But even then, we know so little about their lives. These are people who were barely literate, if they were literate at all. And so their stories are not written down. And that's something I really felt when I was going back into the lives of agricultural labourers, those who worked in the market here in Pembridge, those who worked in the church too, those who raised money for the extraordinary array of candles that would have lit the church at various feasts um, during the year. Who were those people? What were their stories? And they're not recorded. And that was, for me, another very poignant and at times melancholy and certainly when I was dealing with the plague and writing about that during the first and second of the COVID lockdowns, really tragic lives too. And things that when I was sitting with the church records in my hands brought a tear to the eye. What the book also does is looks at both the the local area, but the the rural life more widely and the era um, when the house was built in both art and literature and particularly in the work of the painter Bruegel. I'm a cultural historian, so I consider artworks, poetry, plays, music to be part of the historical evidence that can be amassed about any period. Yes, you've got to treat it gingerly. Of course, you know, a symphony can't tell you as much as a newspaper article. But sometimes, as we well know with journalists, and I'm one of them, they also create a partisan view. So I wanted to offer a broad technicolour landscape of the age. And of course, that colour comes from various different sources, illustrations, trying to get a sense of what it actually looked like. And as we were moving into the house, as I was beginning to put, as it were, the pieces of the jigsaw down on the table, I was looking at the paintings of Peter Bruegel the Elder a lot. He's nothing to do with Herefordshire. He was working in the Duchy of Brabant, as it was called then, part of the Spanish Netherlands, controlled by the Habsburgs, in areas that we would now call the Netherlands and Belgium. And in fact, he was based in Antwerp. Antwerp has so many links with this part of the world, not least through trade. We know that a composer from three villages down went to work in Antwerp. We know that documents, decorative elements from the studio where Bruegel was working came to Herefordshire. And what Bruegel is doing in his paintings of this period, he created an amazing series in 1565 of the seasons, recording the agricultural year, was that they were compendious. They weren't just about Antwerp as he saw it outside his window, outside his studio window, or indeed outside the window of his patron, Nicholas Jongelink, who commissioned those paintings. But given the fact that they have mountains in them, vineyards, cows moving between lowland pastures and highland meadows, all sorts of other paraphernalia from that period, 
that these were a comment on the world entire. This is a period also, of course, of almanacs being created, maps being created, all sorts of things that said, let's conceive not just the thing at the end of our nose, but of the world in which we're living. This is on the cusp also of the scientific revolution. And so what Bruegel gave me as I was imagining the lives of Pembridge folk was a multicoloured, multi-textured, visual atlas for the period. And of course, he's also someone who records the Little Ice Age, records that plunge in median temperatures that occurs just at the moment my house was being built. And so all of this comes into this really weird, idiosyncratic book, A Home for All Seasons, and gives it the rhythm of a year which pops between the local and the universal. And that's something that I really wanted to be at the core of this narrative. Yes, it's about my home. Yes, it's about this tiny little village in a sparsely populated county on the edge of England. But what I really wanted to get across was that the story of this house, the story of my home, is the story, certainly, of all of Europe at that point in time, because it can be translated to where you live, Neil, where many of your listeners live, wherever they have touched something of the rural, but also something of the urban. You know, the city is not absent from this book. and. As I say right towards the end of the book, not those grand narratives, not the huge houses and palaces and stately homes, but the little smallest building blocks of the narrative that when placed together, or like that jigsaw I describe, placing the little snaggletooth pieces down on the table, that as you do that from these little fragments, you suddenly see this complete picture And for me, and I hope for my readers, that was revelatory because it is the story of who we were back then and certainly the story of who we are right now. So I've been talking to Gavin Plumley. We've been talking about his book, A Home for All Seasons, which is out in the UK now from Atlantic. Gavin, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you very much indeed, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 